Hey, bookworms. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I am so glad you are here. I am the Picky Bookworm, and I love bringing recognition to indie and self-published books through book reviews, proofreading, and podcasting. Every Saturday, I get to talk to a member of the writing community, from book bloggers to authors and even other podcasters like myself. I'll include a link to my website where you can leave a comment with your thoughts on the show or questions for the author that I may not have gotten to. You can also find information on how to sponsor this podcast. Ready? Grab your tea, wine, or laundry, and let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. As most of you know, I took last week off for my husband's and my wedding anniversary, and we are back and ready to get going again uh, with weekly shows, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, Today, I have R.T. Slaywood. A lot of you know him from Twitter. And according to our friend Katie, we are bound to get up to some nonsense today. So we are going to jump right into the episode. We're going to get right into our chat and have a great time today. So grab your tea, grab your wine, grab your laundry, Caroline. We're going to get started. What is up? How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. I am glad that you were able uh, to come and visit with me today. Um, I was looking over some of my previous podcast episodes uh, last week, I think it was, and just kind of reflecting on where I got started and how I got started. And, um, you know, part of my motivation for choosing to have authors is I was, I knew I'd probably never run out of guests (laughs) and it's been almost two years and I have not run out of guests yet. (laughs) So I, I get really excited uh, for each uh, brand new author uh, that I get to bring on here and, and just kind of introduce to the world um, in my own special and unique way. So I appreciate you coming um, and chatting with me today. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of authors because there's a lot of writers, a lot of books out there. There are a lot of books uh, out there. Introducing us to the world. So I thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so real quick, uh, before we get started, um, tell us just a little bit about you, how you got started writing, um, what kind of books you write, and just like that that basic stuff. Got it. So I started writing, I think I learned how to write when I was in first grade, maybe kindergarten. I started easy with the with the alphabet. I think most people start there. And I, I worked my way up, you know, after learning the ABCs and learning how to write my letters. Uh, and then I started writing. Most of it was nonsense at first, uh, before I started learning grammar and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it, it really took off from there. I, I, I began putting sentences together, whole words, sentences, paragraphs. And, and then, um, then I got into English class and the essays started coming in, and that's where I kind of lost interest in writing. You know, I, I think we've probably all been there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, really, really where it picked back up was about in fifth grade. <clears throat> they do this writing test, and, and they give it to all American kids to kind of come up with their own story based off of a prompt. 
and the top two kids from every school are basically chosen and they go to this writing convention nationally. And I was one of two kids, uh, me and uh, a student by the name of uh, Chantel, I won't list her last name, were chosen. Um, and she was uh, actually the English teacher's kid in fifth grade. Um, so being selected to go to that convention was kind of a confidence boost back then in fifth grade. Uh, I got to go to my first writing convention and uh, meet all these different authors and uh, it was great. I was really excited and uh, I really wanted to write fantasy because that's what my family is all about. My dad does magic to help pay for stuff when he was in college and did that when I was a kid. So I was, I was really excited to go to this writing convention and meet these writers. And uh, in, in one of the talks, I can't even remember the, the author's name anymore, basically said that, that writing fantasy was pointless because the fantastical elements could just be removed and that conflict, um, it, and it overshadows the conflict and draws away from practicing writing conflict. And so, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Uh, you have a confused look on your face. And, and yeah, y'all really, sh- really should see this look on my face. <laughs> it's like the best WTF look I think I've probably ever made in my life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I was so I was so confused and disappointed because I really like this author um, and everything uh, from what I had heard. And then when I asked her afterwards and that's what she said, I just, boom, lost it. You know, and I think every writer comes into or encounters a person who's like that, who kind of um, talks down about something about their genre, themes, uh, style at some point in their life. And and at the end of the day, I think I was pretty lucky to hit that at fifth grade because uh, it gave me a long time to recover. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I stopped taking writing as seriously, kind of skimmed through school. And uh, about eight years ago is when I first started thinking about doing what I'm doing now, which is writing books on Twitter. And that's kind of a weird concept for a lot of people. There's this idea of Twitter, right? Writing books, novels, stories, poems on Twitter. And it's not an original concept by me, by any scope of the imagination, right? Um, but I just, you know, I thought maybe I can do it a little bit different. What, what can I bring to the table? So I started my Twitter account eight years ago and then life got in the way. <laughs> As it does, and I, yes. I posted one thing eight years ago and uh, just sat on that account for about six years, two, a year and a half ago is when I came back to it. And, and in that time, I did a lot of reading. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books about how to write and my favorite authors. Um, and, and I really focus on learning what it is I like to read. And about a year and a half ago, the pandemic started, started working from home. Uh, and, and that's when I decided, you know what, it's time to pick back up that, that writing account. <clears throat> and so I came to Twitter and it's been uh, a terrible experience ever since. <laughs> worst mistake in my life i've lost more money right now um, <laughs> uh, the writing experience of twitter is great it's it's the other experience everything outside the, the writing community that is troublesome but 
Um, in, in essence, that is my writing story. You know, I, I've spent a, a long time thinking about doing what I'm doing now, and I, I love the writing aspect of it. I love the talking about it aspect. Those are some of my greatest passions in life. Yeah, I I think that pretty much everybody in the writing community is obsessed with the writing community. <laughs> it's like the, and, the and best so. corner on the, it's the best corner on the internet. It's there's, I mean, there's the occasional drama, there's the occasional toxicity and there's the occasional just, you know, bog of negativity. I mean, but for the most part, everybody is super supportive of each other and you know, they realize that it's not a competition because, you know, just because they like this other author's book doesn't mean they're not going to like yours. And so, you know, I just, I get to see so much support and I get to see so much confidence in you guys, um, from being part of that group. And yeah, it's, it's the best corner of the internet as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely have to agree. I, I think the real big reason why we latch on to this, this writing community so much is because inherently writing is a, a lonely process, if you think about it. Yeah. It's a lot of time thinking in your own head about what you're going to do, what you're going to put down on paper. You know, even beyond that, after you've written a book, there's a lot of thought that goes into how am I going to sell this? How am I going to get it pitched? How am I going to get it accepted into a publication? And, you know, there's this one of my first memes that really made it big on writing community was an image of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, surrounded by all these animals kind of flocking in the middle of the forest. And I just titled it me basking in the appreciation of my friends and family uh, and their support for my writing. (laughs) And it was kind of an ironic meme uh, because that's not the case for a lot of people. Me myself, I have a lot of support, but I identified that. Uh, for people very early on, and it, it resonated, and that's when I realized that I could I could be onto something here <laughs> uh, about this whole satire and irony thing, and that's kind of my whole shtick now. Well, I I know a lot of people um, really appreciate seeing you show up in their feeds, and you know it's it's the bright spot for, for a lot of people because you bring laughter and you bring community to something that yes, can be very lonely and can be very isolating. Um, you know, it's writers tend to sit in their little room and that's it, you know? And so just having, having people like you and having people like, you know, the other authors, be able to have that community and be able to have that, that social aspect of something that is inherently not social. You know, you have the various sounding boards and, you know, authors can come on and, and talk about these ideas that they have and, you know, receive either support or, um, dude, I hate to tell you this, but that's dumb. Um, not, that does not happen very often. I would just like to, to state that for the record, but, you know, just, you know, just being able to be honest with each other and being able to support each other and and build up that confidence. Um, you know, my, 
I say this probably a thousand times a week. Um, the the mixing mixing genres um, is probably one of my favorite part about indie books and indie authors. Um, you know, last week my husband and I drove um, to Dallas to uh, go to Medieval Times, had a fantastic time, and on the way back um, we stopped at a half price bookstore. We do not have one in my city. So whenever we are somewhere that has one, we stop. And I'm walking through the science fiction section and I'm walking through the fantasy section and I'm avoiding the romance section like the plague. Sorry, romance authors. I apologize. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm walking through these various sections and I'm looking, I'm looking for the book that is going to speak to me, you know, mm -hmm. and can't find it, can't find it because I'm like, these are all the same, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, they're by 25 different authors, but they're all the same. And mm -hmm. so I, I walked out with one book. Now, granted it was, wow. a tr it was a trilogy in one. So it's technically three books, but I walked out with one book and, you know, I'm like, I have been so spoiled by the originality and by the uniqueness of indie books that I almost just can't walk in a major bookstore anymore and walk out with a book. It's just, oh. it's just almost never going to happen. But you give me money and tell me I can go on Kindle and buy, <laughs> and buy books I am so down for that because I'm like, you know, I head straight for the self-published and in, in indie section um, when I go in Kindle. And, you know, if it's not um, by someone I either know is a self-published author or by an author I've never heard of, chances are I'm probably not going to buy it. You yeah. know, I, I have very few uh, trad pub books in my Kindle anymore. Very few. Um, and those few are ones that I've read before when I was like a kid and just really loved them and knew they needed to be part of my collection. That's pretty much, <laughs> pretty much it. <laughs> well, that's the only reason you buy books is for your collection, right? Yes, you know, absolutely. No one really reads these days. <laughs> sure. Yeah, my my I have a friend Colleen um, that she posted on Twitter one day. She said buying books and reading books are two completely separate hobbies. Oh, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> um, absolutely. So yeah. Um, okay, so what um, you said that you like to write on Twitter, um, but have you written a a book? And if you have, what it's a, what's it about? Yeah, I have, um, I've written one and a half. So I, I wrote, wrote one book mainly to get it out of the way. It's not, I, I treat writing in general like performance, right? And that's where I, I spent, that's where I grew up. I just said earlier that my dad was a magician. Uh, you know, he, he worked and had a day job, but to make some extra money, he would, um, he would do these magic shows. And when I was like six years old, he started bringing me and my brother along and I learned how to be a performer. And that to me has always stuck to me. Um, just this process of getting up on stage, being in front of people, learning how to talk and present yourself and, and create an engaging experience for people. And I take that philosophy of performing 
and I bring it into my writing. And so when I first came to Twitter and I started this idea of like, I'm going to write this book on Twitter, I'm going to publish these books that I wrote on Twitter, um, and then finding out that publishers won't publish books that have been published elsewhere, and then realizing I would have to self-publish everything, okay, fine. I'll just get the first one out of the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, you know, if, you, if you're if you doing performance, you get up and you find someone close to you to show them the performance first and you get that out of the way. And so one day I had jokingly post about a guide to writing bad and uh, one of the uh, other people in the writing community, uh, RCM uh, author, at RCM author, or Rochelle, um, said, you got to publish this book, this guide on how to be a bad writer. And I, I said, you think people would actually want to buy that? Uh, you know, I, I had started leaning into this whole satire bit and I was thinking about it and she's like, no, this is a good idea. I'll, I'll help write it with you. And so over the next like four months, <laughs> we, we worked on this book and then we published it and it became number one in new releases, um, last year. And nice. it was a fantastic experience because I learned so much from working with her and, and it's like what you said you know you need other authors there to tell you that some things are a good idea and some things are a bad idea because if i had listened to myself the first thing i would have published was furby erotica i had that down on my docket that was going to be the first thing i was going to you were going to write what i'm sorry furby erotica that's right <laughs> that's my first first idea intrusive thought that came in my head was right about the plastic toys getting it on with each other and publish it. No, it gives <laughs> that. I'm serious. I wrote 50,000 words before someone said, no, 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 you, you can't do that. Slaywood. <laughs> and I, and, I, said, and, I'm, and I, I'm a kid of the nineties. So I know what those little freaks look like. Yeah. The little sensors on their heads, oh little bottling, mechanical little toys. I could never Dang get it. mine. To, I could never get mine to talk though. I was heartbroken. Uh, that's okay. Uh, mine didn't do a whole lot of talking either. <laughs> well, no. But, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I wrote 50,000 words before someone told me to stop. I had even come, I had even sourced, because uh, I was going to publish it myself and print this abomination. <laughs> and my brother, who you know, knows me pretty well, was like, yeah, you got you to gotta do this. And I was like, well, what happens if you open it and it moans? The book moans when you open it. And I can do that. I, I can buy sensors little like that you have in um like birthday cards that open and record that sound so when you open this book that's at like a barnes and noble it moans sensually as kind of like a selling point and you and you know that there would be people that would walk through the barnes and noble and open every single book exactly you know yeah, that they're you know it oh was the best, worst idea I've ever been talked out of in my <laughs> life. And I am more than happy to put that project on the shelf for now <laughs> and go with the oh my God. I'm, writing bad. I'm laughing so hard. I have tears in my eyes. That is because, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I can just, I can see Furbies in my head and it's like, it almost feels like Teletubbies because mm -hmm. Teletubbies are just horrible and <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, I mean it's it's like the funniest thing going on in my head I people should just never live in my head I I really think the only person that can survive it is my husband um because yeah I I 
earlier this year, I know I have talked about this probably a million times, um, but I was diagnosed with ADHD earlier this year. And I have learned over the years about myself that a lot of times I don't always think in words, I think in pictures. And, you know, some people may be the same way. It may be a trait of ADHD. I don't know. Um, but someone will say something disturbing and I will, I, I have to look at them and go, okay, you really have to stop talking about that because it is playing in my head like a movie. Your Furby erotica is playing in my head like a movie <laughs> and it is the saddest most disturbing, funniest thing I think I've ever had playing in my head. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I get that a lot. A lot of people say, you know, I've had people tweet at me saying that I was in their dreams dreams the other night. And, and I chalked it up to my, my uh, performance, you know, my performing attitude when it comes to writing and stuff like that. And, and making these, all my writing, I like to try and make it an experience so it resonates with people and draws up those those images and it's funny you should mention the ADD because I myself was diagnosed with ADD when I was in sixth grade and um you know neurodivergency I think is is kind of a strength for authors it, if they learn how to use it and kind of work with it and lean yeah. into it um, well and you know I I was listening to, you know, right in the, in the months leading up to my diagnosis, because it had taken me actually um, a couple of months, I think, to get scheduled uh, with a doctor that was able to, to give me my diagnosis. But in the process of waiting for that appointment, I went a little obsessive, as we tend to do, and decided <laughs> that I needed to go into that appointment as prepared as I could be and know as much about it myself as I could because it's more difficult as an older person to get diagnosed. And, mm. you know, I knew something was going on and I knew it had, you know, I was ADHD was really the only thing that I could think that would cause the, the things that were going on. And so I started listening to this podcast about specifically about women with ADHD. And one of the things that the, the host said was that she didn't believe that it should be called a disorder because it doesn't, you know, saying something is a disorder implies that there's something wrong with you. You know, saying you have ADHD symptoms implies there's something wrong with you, implies that it's a disease. And, you know, I just really took that to heart. And, you know, when I see people, you know, mention that, you know, they're having, you know, trouble with their ADHD symptoms or, you know, stuff like that, I tend to call them traits rather than symptoms, you know, because it is a neurodivergence. It is um, you know, it's a difference in the way that our brain works rather than a disease that needs to be fixed. You know, we don't need to be fixed. We just need a little bit of help getting our brains to uh, work in the way that we need them to um, in order to survive this wonderful neurotypical world that we live in. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I, I, I completely, completely understand, you know, uh, having been, been diagnosed and going to therapy and, and dealing and being uh, neurodivergent with ADD and, and other mental illnesses, um, it, it can be rough sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's just like being an author. It's very lonely at times. It can't, yeah, it can be. And, you know, I, when I started, you know, finding other people, you know, especially in the, in the Twitter community that, you know, had the same, you know, some of the same traits and some of the same struggles that I had, you know, it, it helped bolster that community and that sense of belonging and that sense of, you know, I, I make the comparison that going on Twitter is sort of like walking into the high school cafeteria and having everyone want you to sit at their table, you know, that's a great analogy. And, you know, you walk in and it's like, everybody is the, the in kid. Everybody is the popular kid. You know, everybody is friends with everybody else. And it's like, you know, just this big crowd of chaotic wonderful people that if not for social media, we never would have met, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. And I, I was talking to a, another author that she was actually told, um, that it's impossible for someone with ADHD to be an author because they just don't have the focus that, that you need to be an author. And she and I were, were kind of laughing about that because I'm like, like 90% of the authors that I know have some form of neurodivergence. <laughs> so yeah. saying it's impossible for this to happen, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't resonate uh, with me as, as factual. I think it's oh. you know, wishful thinking on on someone's part. <laughs> no, I, I would have to agree. You know, go to the top 10, 10 authors list right now that are alive. And I guarantee you each one of them have had a problem in the past. I mean, and, and it might not be neurodivergence. It could be addiction. It could be a whole, you know, a whole host of problems, but writers in general, I don't think are, would be classified as, as normal or typical. Right. And, and so and they this, this idea be. of gatekeeping, you know, people out for being different or saying that they don't have the ability to, well, they're, they're just wrong or going to get proven wrong one way or another. I, I agree. They're just wrong. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um, it's, it's a very black and white, um, very, that's, that's a very black and white statement. Um, I don't usually go for the black and white, um, but in this case, I think that it's important. They're just wrong. It's because, <laughs> um, I mean, because in my experience, it has not worked itself out to be true. You know, it's like a scientific hypothesis. You you make a statement and then mm -hmm. you, you test it or you look for evidence to back up that statement. And there is no evidence to back up a statement that a neurodivergent person cannot be an author. There's, there's exactly. no evidence to back that up. Um, there's plenty of evidence to back up the opposite of that statement, which would be every author is neurodivergent. 
Um, undiagnosed at, at the minimum, I would say. <laughs> well, and I mean, and even if there's an author that is neurotypical, they at least understand neurodivergence well enough to work well with other, you know, with neurodivergent people. So it still doesn't create an us versus them type of competition. You know, it's, you've got people from all over the spectrum, from neurotypical to, um, you know, to ADHD, to autistic, to, you know, all of these various neurodivergencies. And, you know, we all work together and we all hang out together and we all sit in the same cafeteria that's, you know, a few miles square. (laughs) Otherwise, how would you fit us all? Um, You know, so it's just, it's this wonderful, great, you know, chaotic space that that we occupy um and it's wonderful i i love it a lot um which is you know hence the picky bookworm and the podcast and you know all of the all of the other stuff that i have uh started doing and started working on so um okay so you had mentioned earlier um that there were a lot of um authors or several authors that had been an inspiration to you during your six years of, um, you know, learning how to write, uh, for lack of a better phrase, what are some, um, authors that you would recommend? Uh, what are some authors that, um, or books even that have been an inspiration to you that, um, you want our listeners to know about? Hmm. Totally so, put you on the spot. So you know, you talked about going to a bookstore and going through and 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 trying to find a book to read, and that's that's mostly what I did. I would go to a bookstore and I'd pick up, you know, three to five books and read the intros and decide whether or not I was I, I would take them home. And then I would eventually come back the next day. And my reading process is very particular. You know, I want to know. I, I wanted to find something that resonated with me. And so I would pick up a book and walk away and I'd come back to it in, you know, a week, two weeks, a month even. And during that time, I'm just thinking about the book. I'm just thinking about what I read. Is it, is the story set up enough to get me interested? And it could be weeks or even months before I finally say, okay, I I gotta come back and I gotta read this book. And, you know, authors, any, any of the big, authors know how to do that i would say they know how to present an introduction of conflict early on that grasps your attention um you know some great examples i would say are of course you know stephen king patrick rothis uh those kind of authors are most most of the time where i've spent my time um but you know, after doing that for so long, as you said, you get kind of bored of it and you start going further into the hobby and that leads you into the indie community. And, you know, if I'm going to talk about anyone in, in writing, I'm going to talk about indie indie authors and, and people that I've met over the last year and a half that I think are good. And really the first one that came up, I would say, where I picked up the book and I said, wow, this is, this is really good. This is, this is genius. This is something that I can see being bigger or being on Netflix or Amazon or HBO. 
that was Kate Thomas, uh, Time to Wake. Oh, you know, yes. You know, she's really popular right now. She's an amazing writer. Um, and there's so much that she introduces in that first opening chapter that gets the brain working. You know, you got, you know, the fan favorite, uh, Benny being introduced right in the beginning of Ghosts. Everybody loves uh, Benny. Benny is like the, the best ever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and, and Katie is just such a powerful character. And that, that's something that I, that I read and I said, wow, this is something I could recommend to anyone to read just because it's that good. Um, some other authors who are fantastic, um, I would say Lou Diamond Phillips. I mean, he's kind of famous, but, uh, the tinderbox soldier, uh, in Aria is, is fantastic. If you haven't read that, I would say, go read I that. didn't That's know fine. that he had written any books. I I've seen him on TV. I've seen him in movies. Didn't know that he wrote books. That's, that's so, kind of see, amazing. And this is why I've been telling him he needs a guy like me to really memify his work, his, <laughs> his books. You know, I've been harassing him for a year and a half. Pick me, pick me, pick me. But he, he hasn't called me back yet. Uh, um, um, so, so yeah, those are two big ones. Um, Wes uh, wrote a book recently that is uh, fantastic, The Soul Wizard. I really enjoyed that one. Um, Clockwork Dreams being another book. I, I uh, think her handle is uh, Fantasy. But, yeah, there's... There's so many great authors, and, and if you're thinking about writing a book, I would say start in the indie community and, and get to know the people who are doing the work, you know. And, and of course, uh, you know, a, a book that I would recommend to anyone, hands down, would be The Ballad of Bonaduke, which is what I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, that's why we had you here, so, you know, people could hear about your book. So, um Tell us about it, and uh, when do you think it'll be released? So it, it's kind of a unique situation for the Ballad of Bonaduke because I started off by drafting these stories on Twitter. Uh, I, I wrote one called The Story of Kin and The Story of Cal, and then The Ballad of Bonaduke, and The Ballad of Bonaduke went out as far as getting attention, so of course I had to write that. Um, <laughs> and so it's being published on a biweekly basis right now on Amazon's uh, Kindle Bell. So every two weeks, you can get an episode and follow along. And, uh, you know, it, it should be, be published and released on Amazon probably in a year or two at max with at the rate I'm writing. But, um, yeah, the, the concept behind The Ballad of Bonaduke is, is dark humor. It, it's dark, gritty humor and humanity kind of mixing together into one guy who is Michael Bonaduke. And what I love about this story and what people seem to love about it as well is just Bonaduke isn't your typical protagonist. He's He starts off the story as homeless. He starts off the story as suffering and really a haunted individual. And he, throughout the story so far, 
I think people have really started to resonate with his kind of gruff um, demeanor. And I think that's why people keep reading it. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, that's something that I think we can all relate to is those imperfect characters, you know? I mean, when I was a kid, I read Nancy Drew. What kid didn't read Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys? But, you know, one of the things that always irritated me about her was that no matter what book it was that I was reading, she was Mm -hmm. always 18, but she always somehow had the skills to complete whatever case it was that she needed, uh, whatever skills, Mm -hmm. whether it was lock picking skills, whether it was karate or taekwondo or, you know, (laughs) she was, she was always an expert in whatever Mm -hmm. it was that she, in whatever skill it was that she needed, um, in order to, to finish the case. And, you know, while I loved Nancy Drew and while I loved the idea of trying to, you know, figure out who did it before Nancy did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the fact that she was always really good at everything irritated me. Oh, and, yeah. you know, to the point that these days I can't even read a Nancy Drew book because she irritates me. Um, so I'm like, you've never aged. Come on. Um, <laughs> they need like a 50 year old Nancy Drew um, who is, you know, actually a black belt in karate, um, that would be okay. Um, you know, but the fact that she never aged. And so I think that having those characters with faults, having those characters Mm -hmm. with struggles, having those characters with their, their inner demons or, or the skeletons in their closet, Um, you know, that, those are the characters that we relate to. And those are the characters that we come back for, um, you know, and that is something that indie authors excel at is creating those imperfect characters rather than, rather than those impossibly perfect (laughs) characters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to admit that that's, what really drew me to George R. R. Martin's writing. And when he first started writing it, I was back in high school. And um, it was kind of my first exposure from transferring from young adult novels to actual more mature content. And his characters exemplify that in every way, shape, or form. Um, each one of them has some kind of flaw, some kind of uh, fault. And it, it never does them any favors, you know? And, and to me, that, that resonated to me, and that's something I really like about my writing and that I want to keep doing, is representation of faults not being always turned into gifts. I, I want it to be something that the reader understands that this person struggles with. It's not going to magically become their greatest strength. That's not... That's not how disability works. That's not how my ADD works, for sure. I mean, it's not. Well, it's, it's not how difficult. it's not how the world works. Right. <clears throat> exactly. And these. Yeah. Exactly. 
And so, you know, with Bonaduke being this gruff, not very bright guy, he makes mistakes. He makes bad calls. He, he functions on poor assumptions and it costs him each and every time. Um, and, and that's something I'm going to keep doing as long as I write. Um, cause that message at least resonates with me. I, I want to see characters overcome odds, even with their disabilities, um, not succeeding because they have disabilities and, and that to me is an important message. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, it, that brings to mind, um, the, the book by Bridget Kemmerer, um, A Curse So Dark and Lonely, um, you know, the, the main character, I think I was talking about this, um, last episode, um, but the main character has cerebral palsy and, um, cerebral palsy is one of those, um, things that present differently in everybody. Um, very similar to, um, MS, um, MS is very difficult to, uh, diagnose because it presents differently, um, in everybody. And cerebral palsy is one of those things. And, you know, so hers presents in that one of her legs does not work as well as it should. And so when she ends up in this situation, um, it is a uh, Beauty and the Beast retelling. Um, I totally read it. It's amazing. Um, but when she ends up in this, um, in this situation, she, she has to fight with her leg not working. You know, it's not that her, the cerebral palsy all of a sudden becomes this amazing strength, but that she is able to overcome things, um, even with this disability, she's, you know, she's able, but she has, and what makes her so amazing is that not that she overcomes her disability, that's, you know, that's just part of who she is, but she's got this indomitable spirit and this just power to her that she uses all of that to her advantage. Um, whether, whether it's playing up her disability in order to get sympathy from somebody she's trying to manipulate or, you know, learning to learning to fight with a dagger or a sword, uh, because she needs to know to defend herself, you know, whether it's, you know, all of these things, it's that indomitable spirit that she has that makes her such a wonderful character. And, you know, the, the disability is part of who she is. That's just, it's not really talked about much. It's just kind of mentioned as in, yeah, this is, you know, this, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, they, the author really only brings it up in situations in which it would be an issue. She's trying mm-hmm. to run through the woods. All of a sudden her leg gives out cause it's not working as well as it's supposed to, you know, things like that. And it's love the story. Absolutely love the story. Um, fell in love with the cover. Um, I have mentioned multiple times. I am a sucker for a good cover. <laughs> sucker for a good cover. And the uh, the Curse of Dark and Lonely cover um, is, is a really great one. It's beautiful. Um, and that's, you know, speaking of good covers, that is something that indie community 
chef's kiss. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have fallen in love with more than one cover <laughs> when shopping for books on Kindle um, because they're just, they're so pretty. And, you know, you guys just seem to have this innate knowledge that, you know, people judge a book by its cover. We just do. It's, it's a thing. Um, and so you know that as part of your marketing efforts, that cover has to be top notch. And, you know, you go into, you know, a Barnes and Noble or a, um, you know, a bookstore, half price books, you know, those covers just don't speak to me in the way that an indie book does. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I can wax poetic about the indie community all day. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, cause when I first, uh, when I published the Genius Guide, I got a lot of people asking me for writing tips and, and how to sell their book better, you know, cause you know, I've worked in marketing for a long time. I'm very good at showmanship. I'm good at presenting myself. And that's what really attributed to the large number of sales we saw with the Genius's Guide to Writing Bad. And so I got a lot of DMs asking me, you know, what can I do to sell my book? Here's my book. What can I do to sell it better? And then I would say that's probably number one is, uh, is get a good cover. You know, people say, don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's, people do. It's really great. I mean, it would be really great if you didn't, but mm-hmm. you you do. I mean, it's it's very you know. Here's another analogy um, that I think you're gonna like. Um, I, I hear a lot of or heard a long time ago where you know girls would talk about, well, I shouldn't have to put on makeup and I shouldn't have to dress nice to go out and meet a guy. Well, from the guy's perspective, what you look like on the outside is going to determine whether he comes over to talk to you and get to know who you are on the inside. It's that cover that attracts, and then it's the inside that keeps the person with you. Um, you know, and so it's that cover is it's important. I mean. If I see, you know, I, um, I had mentioned this, um, a while back that, um, I, I shop for books at the Dollar Tree, um, insert judgment here. It's totally fine. Um, but I I love going to the, the tiny little book section at the Dollar Tree and just seeing what they have because I'm like, even if the book sucks, it only costs me a dollar, you know? So, um, but I saw this one where it was, the cover was white, the letters were blue, and it was literally just the title on a white cover. <clears throat> but it was so simple that it was attractive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, I, I have to have, I really, you know, at that point I was like, I really don't care what's in it. I need this book because it's so pretty, <laughs> you know. So that the cover is really important, you know. And mm-hmm. on the other end of that spectrum, I'm not going to mention the author or the book, um, but I had come across this book that the the title was attractive, the the blurb was attractive, the cover looked like it had been drawn by a kindergartner. Mm. I did not buy the book. <laughs> 
it's that it, sounds horrible and it probably makes me sound like a horrible person which is why I'm not mentioning the book or the author um but having that really great cover is you know I think like you said probably your first step in your marketing efforts for your book is to have that cover that is going to make an eye a scrolling eye on Kindle stop and go exactly. okay I need to read the blurb on this book um my friend Daniel um I got to proofread um his book a while back um Hydra's Wake um I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter the cover holy moly <laughs> I saw this cover and I'm like, okay, I don't even really care what the book is about because this cover would sell books. It's, it's that good. It is fantastic. Um, are you looking it up on the computer? I, I, was, I was trying to, what is it called? It's called Hydra's Wake by Daniel Jones. I think his last name is. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, right. That is right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to tell him that I was talking about his book, um, on the podcast, but, um, but yeah, it was, you know, just that cover I'm scrolling through the, and he included it in the word doc when he sent it to me for proofreading. And, you know, then when he, when I was done proofreading, I sent it back to him and, and everything. Um, he had emailed me and said, Hey, um, you know, I really liked your comments when you sent the, the manuscript back, would you be willing to write a review? I'm like, sure. You know, so right around the time that it published, I went, I went and wrote my review and part of my review is, okay, guys, the cover, let's just take a second for the cover. <laughs> I mean, cause it's, you know, and for my listeners who don't know uh, what this book is, um, the cover is a, it's basically a dirigible, um, flying through five Hydra heads. And it's like this, like just the Hydra is just incredible. Um, oh yeah. And I, I don't know who he got to do his cover art. He might have to like plug um, his cover artist or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, I mean, it's just, it's one of those covers that regardless of what's inside, you want to read the book. It, it's just, Absolutely. it's one of them. Um, so yeah, totally plug in somebody else's book, but that's okay. The, the story itself is really good too. I, I would just like, <clears throat> would just like to say that, yes, the story itself is really good, but we were talking about covers. Um, and, and that one is a, is a really good one. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would have to agree. Um, that is a fantastic cover. The artwork's beautiful. And, and the issue in the indie community is sometimes, I mean, covers are expensive. They you are. Know? Yeah. They are outrageously expensive. And over the next couple of years, we're going to see more AI art being used to generate covers and stuff like that. <clears throat> and, and that might be a controversial issue, but if you're looking, if you're listening and you're an author and you're looking to get a good cover, you know, a, a great example of someone who I think kind of figured out the system is, uh, Tommy, uh, Nikai Williams. Um, he did a spirit sword series. It's like three books. Um, and then he did the, uh, Illustro Heist, I-L-L-R-U-S-O Heist. It's a little short heist novella, and, um, it's one of the better books I've re read on the writing community. But if you take a look at that, it's, it's short, it's to the point, it uses silhouettes, 
bold colors, design background. And, and I would say if you're struggling to get a good cover, um, you know, start with silhouettes. There's no shame in that. Um, and, and they can look neat and professional and they'll sell you, they'll sell your book. You know, well, if you can't afford an artist for five hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> five hundred to a thousand dollars, you know, uh, or, or find someone to do a silhouette. They're a lot cheap. They're a lot more um, affordable. Or find somebody who can loan you their Canva Pro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I you know the cover, the cover. Um, as far as I am concerned. Um, as a as an indie fan, there are two things that indie authors and self-published authors should not skimp on is editing and the cover. Um, oh, you know, if you if you are able to design it yourself, uh, do so. Um, but keep in mind it it needs to pop. You know, you, there's a lot of competition out there that covers your first selling point. Um, but then if you have a really great cover and somebody opens the book and there's typos everywhere, that's a problem too. Um, and you know, so it's, those are, those are probably the, the two things that I would always recommend. Don't skimp on if you can help it at all. Um, is, is those, you know, that cover and that, that editing, um, because if you've got those two things down, you can actually charge more for your book. You know, oh, yeah. you're not going to be stuck in that 99 cent to 2.99 range. Um, you know, the I I actually have a, a blog post idea that is uh, why I hate spending 99 cents on a book. Um, and it's you know, there's there's one book that I, I have mentioned this multiple times, and I mentioned it in my book review um, that I hate the fact that this book is only 99 cents because I know the author could charge more and people would pay for it. Um, and that is uh, Connor's Gambit by Z Gottlieb. I loved it so much. I bought it for my mom for her birthday. Oh, <laughs> you're sitting in front of your computers. So you're like looking for the books. Um, but it's well-written. It's well done. It has a really great story. And I loved it so much that I bought it for my mom for her birthday. And when I went to go buy it, I was heartbroken to see that it was only 99 cents because yeah. I, I would have spent five, six, seven, eight, up to like $10 for this book. And I wouldn't have blinked an eye. Um, yeah. that, you know, it's that good. I would not have blinked an eye, um, at spending upwards of, you know, seven, $8. I don't typically spend more than $10 on an ebook period, regardless of who the author is. Um, but you know, that's, and I, I may revisit my, my, why I hate to spend 99 cents on a book. Um, I may revisit that blog post, uh, very soon because it, it feels like they're shortchanging themselves. When oh, they're only absolutely. charging 99 cents for a book, it, it breaks my heart because mm -hmm. the, you know, and I, I get the marketing aspect of it. I get it, but when, you know, and when I see a book that's only 99 cents, unfortunately, 
I make an assumption about that book. It oh, must, absolutely. it must not yeah. be well written. It must have typos. It, you know, it's, and that it's that automatic assumption thing. And then I read the book and I'm like, this, this is worth more than 99 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, 99 cents is great for a sale. It, it's great for a sale. Um, I have bought more 99 cent books from people posting on Twitter. Hey, my book's on sale. Um, but having that as a regular price that, yeah, it, it does. It feels like you're shortchanging yourself. Um, oh, and, and you are from a marketing and sales standpoint, you know, there's this some assumed value concept, um, based off of pricing. And the minute you start charging a certain amount, that is the assumption of the value of what's inside it. Yeah. And, you know, and I've gotten into Twitter arguments with people about the 99 cent thing before. And, you know, I even tell people don't, don't even, don't even do a sale for 99 cents. You know, it, it seems like a good idea and sure. It'll get your, your book out there. But at the end of the day, especially for me, uh, I view it as, you know, pride and charging for what my book is worth. And I, and I hate to see authors shortchange themselves. And I say that right now while my ebook for the genius's guide to bad writing is at 99 cents, <laughs> but to be fair, it's only 36 pages. So, well, there you go. Um, and most of them are blank. <laughs> well, and you know, I, um, Oh, I had a thought and I lost it. Um, let me see if I can get it back like really, really, really quickly. Cause we are almost out of time. Um, oh yes. Okay. I knew I'd get it back. So I, I had somebody on Twitter actually tweet out a question of, do you think I should raise the price of my book? And I answered and said, yes, because of your statement about the implied value, you know, people, they, you assign value based on cost. And, you know, if something costs $5.99, if something costs $6.99, you know, people are going to, to add value to that. They are going to assume it is of higher value because it costs more. But, you know, the other thing that I told him was if you raise the price of your book, make sure the value on the inside matches what you are charging. If you have a book that you raise the price to $5.99 and you open it, it's formatted badly, it's edited badly, there's typos everywhere, people are, they're going to tell their friends not to buy your book. And then your $5.99 price point just went out the window because the value on the inside did not match the value that people had assigned to it based on that price. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was my little soapbox, uh, statement for the day. We've got about two minutes left. Um, where can we find you to come hang out? So, so if you ever want to talk to me, I'm mostly on Twitter. I, you know, I spend 90% of my time there. I also do posts on Reddit sometimes and make fun of that community because God, they're so, so gullible. <laughs> it's almost heartbreaking. And, um, and also on Facebook, a lot of the communities, because apparently that's where you get people to read stuff. I, I found that out way later in the game, but yeah, if you write, uh, serials, 
Facebook communities is where you promote it, apparently. Huh. Um, didn't know. Yeah, I had no idea. But my writing you can find on Amazon. I don't think any traditional publisher will pick me up anytime soon because of how I write my books, drafting them on Twitter first. Um, I am currently hoping to submit a piece to Morian Press for their upcoming uh, anthology. So you may see my work in there, fingers crossed. Uh, but yeah, as far as uh, meet and greets, you can find me at RT Slaywood on Twitter. I would say awesome. that would be the best place. Okay, awesome. Um, well, I thank you again so much uh, for coming and visiting with me today. It was an absolute blast. Um, and I will we've got about 14 seconds left. So I will see you on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank Thanks. you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.